Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, long introduction last week, uh, so I'm going to keep it tight this week. Thank you to everyone who gave me such positive feedback about last week's introduction to the show. It was from the heart. It wasn't really thought out and I'm sure I missed a whole bunch of really valid and salient points, but I appreciate the people who hit me up, particularly on the Patreon, patreon.com slash Willosophy, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash philosophy w-i-l just one l o-s-o-p-h-y is the place to go join up for as little as a dollar a month that is in u.s dollars i should point that out but for as little as a dollar a month and if we can get to that magical five thousand dollar mark we'll release a new episode per week and also a catch-up episode with a previous guest at the moment there's some extra costs to do with the podcast because obviously most of the interviews are over the power of the world wide web and technology and sometimes our first time guests uh, you know that they they aren't very familiar with how we need to record the podcast fuck i'm not very familiar with how we need to record the podcast so podcast mike is working overtime to make it sure it all comes to you at the moment so every dollar you can donate there some people have donated a dollar a month i appreciate all of those some people five dollars ten dollars twenty dollars even a fifty dollar i notice so to those people incredibly generous particularly during these times i just want to give a massive shout out and of course for anyone who joins up on the patreon send me a message and i will definitely respond to it i'm trying during these trying times to not read so much social media i don't think it's particularly healthy most of the time particularly in these down times when we can get very worried about things that we can't do a lot about all we can control at the moment is you know our own behavior and trying to do our own little bit to make sure that other people are safe and well and supported and I guess that's what I talked about a lot last week, so I won't go back over it again this week. Uh, I told you this would be a short intro, so you know you know about the Patreon. It's there. Send me a message. Join up on the Patreon. It would be massively appreciated. Today's guest is a uh, brilliant stand-up comedian and uh, full-service sex worker. Her name is Bella Green, and uh, I found this interview absolutely fascinating. I hope that you will too. Uh, I, it was a great pleasure to, I'd never had a conversation with Bella before this. We had done one show together with, we'd been on the same lineup, but we had hadn't actually, you know, spoken at that show. So this was the first time that we ever spoke and, uh, I, I enjoyed getting to know her and I hope you will too. So enjoy this episode with Bella Green. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and I'm very excited about today's guest because uh, really branching out now. So the rule of this podcast, and I'm explaining this for the people at home, but I guess also to my guest who is not here in the room with me today, who is in another place in another time. Well, no, not another time, but in pretty much the same time, depending on the lag we get over technology, but in another place. And I've always had a rule with this podcast that we do first time guests face to face. It always just feels to me like we can have the conversations that we want to have on this show better face-to-face, the intimacy of being in a room with somebody and being able to, you know, connect with them on a level that it's sometimes harder to do over technology. But of course, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and like everybody, we've had to change what we do a little bit. And so actually, you're my first and I thank you for this. You are my first brand new guest on this show who I 
haven't properly met in real life before. So uh, with all that introduction done, um, it's not the it's not the most overwhelming of introductions, but you know it's nice to know when you you're someone's first for the first time. Uh, who are you? Um, I am Bella Green. I am a comedian. I'm a writer. I am a full service sex worker. That's pretty much my my triple threat. You're an incredibly funny stand-up. As I said, we were just talking before the podcast started. We actually have done, uh, we've crossed paths once before on the same lineup, which is uh, part of the wonderful world of stand-up comedy in which we live, is that often you don't necessarily get to meet people, but you might have actually performed on the same stage as them, on the same uh, show as them. And uh, so we haven't uh, met IRL before, so I thought, you know what, I will... Go onto the World Wide Web, the information superhighway, and I'm going to check out some of your stand-up because I've seen all the amazing reviews you were getting for your shows. You were, you know, winning prizes for what you were doing in stand-up, and you were clearly somebody that I was taking some notice of. But I hadn't really had the opportunity to sit down and actually watch a lot of your stand-up. And luckily enough, there's a couple of really great bits floating around the internet, and I just thought it's it's absolutely fantastic. So can we start with stand-up? We, we'll probably get to some of the other stuff first as well, sorry. But how long have you been doing stand-up for? I did my first open mic set two and a half years ago. So I am a baby baby to stand-up comedy. I mean, that is really like very young in stand-up comedy years. And you are, can I, can, I mean, it doesn't have to be an exact age if you know like, but what what kind of stage of your life are you in to be coming into? Well, what age were you when you started doing stand up? I guess is what I'm really trying to ask. I was 32, so I'm yeah 35 now. I was 32, and I'd always dreamed of doing something creative. I know I wanted to perform, but I wasn't really sure what or how. Um, and yeah, had spent a lot of years mostly doing sex work and kind of dreaming of something more, but not really knowing what that was, and. I realized at some point that my Facebook statuses were really good. Like I felt like I was very good at putting together a sentence on the internet that made people laugh. And I also, I knew I wanted to be on stage in some capacity. Like I like being the center of attention. And I just started getting this idea that I wanted to do stand-up comedy. And I wasn't like a huge fan of the genre. You know, there were people I would see when they came out for Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I'd see one or two shows, but I wasn't like watching specials or a big stand-up fan. It was just something that went, maybe I could do that. Maybe I'd be okay at it. So I jumped in. So where did you jump in? Because I always love the stories of people's first gigs. Where was your Where was your first gig? My first gig was Club Voltaire Friday Night Open Mic. So how do you, what five minutes? Yeah, was it five minutes that you had to prepare? It's currently a four minute night, but when I did it two years ago, it was a five minute night. And I, I'm lying a little. I had done six months of improv comedy before that. My first step in was I'm going to go take an improv class because that sounds like something you do to get some confidence on stage and six months of that I was like all right I'm ready for for stand-up so had you gone and seen stand-up shows previously I like to know how you prepare because if you've gone and done improv that's some sort of you somebody who says I can't just immediately get up there I need to do some sort of training to get me to the point where I can do that had you gone and watched a lot of shows by that stage or were you still coming into it not necessarily being a huge fan of stand-up and also not necessarily having seen a lot of stand-up Well, what happened was I was still sitting on this little secret of I want to be a stand-up comedian one day and I met a girl in level three improv called Claire Hagen 
And we hit it off, went for lunch after an improv class. And I said to her, I secretly want to be a stand-up comedian. She was like, I do stand-up comedy. It's easy. I'll take you under my wing. And she said to me, we're going to go to this comedy night on a Friday night. She took me to Club Voltaire. But we arrived at about 10 p.m. And when I got there, I could see the sign out the front kind of said it started at 7. And I'm like, why are we turning up this late? She was like, oh, no, no, you'll see. And took me in and it was the start of the third bracket. And I guess for anyone who doesn't know how comedy nights like that work, the first and second brackets are more established comedians. And the third bracket is the real first timers and people that the room runners don't like very much. And uh, (laughs) it's... It's an interesting experience. So we get into this room and sit down. And the first act that we watch is a guy called Bill. And Bill makes this joke about how when he takes a woman out for a date, um, she'll never know if he's going to slip her the bill or not. And Claire just looked at me and she was like, you can get up there and fart on stage for five minutes and you'll be funnier than that guy. Um, So apologies to Bill if he's still out there and listening. I never saw him again. But yeah, I saw what people were doing. And I was like, yeah, I had this impossible standard in my head of what I had to be doing to do stand-up and realized that the bar was a lot lower. Uh, Yeah, I think that often inspiration can come from knowing what the bottom entry level is. I've said that before about stand-up as well. I wasn't so inspired by going along to nights and seeing people do well. I was inspired by going on along to open mic nights and going, geez, I reckon there's at least three or four people that I'm better at. Like, you know, it's actually the... And that's why we need the shit people to stay around the scene because the shit people are actually <laughs> the people who inspire other people to try it. That, I actually couldn't agree more with that. I think trash people should keep doing trash or open mic comedy forever. It's very inspiring. Uh, so immediately when you then have to prepare something, if you decide that I'm going to you know, do this first five minutes on stage, did you, because certainly the material I've seen, a lot of it, you know, you talk about sex work uh, or make jokes around that in your set. Was that something that was immediately in your material or did you start with something that was much more general than that? Yeah, always wanted to talk about sex work. Um, I think when I first started getting that idea of wanting to be a stand-up comedian, I had a vague idea of a fringe-esque show where I talked about sex work. So that was always going to be the basis of where my jokes were going to lie. I don't think I realized. Actually, I did realize when I got up there and I did my first five-minute set about working in brothels, I thought people would heckle and tell me I was a slut and a whore and I don't know what words I'm able to use on this podcast, so stop me if I can't, but... Um, well, I mean, you're allowed to use whatever you, I, I sometimes moderate my language and like learn, you know, often what this conversation has been over the last six years is me moderating or changing or adapting the way that I communicate about things because I get to speak to people from particular life experiences who might give me better and fuller education about how I can use words. But the guests themselves, you're allowed to say whatever the fuck you want to say. This is free range for you. Fucking excellent because I swear like a sailor. (laughs) On that note, I like people to refer to me as a sex worker. I think it shows that they respect what I do, but I will run my mouth about being a prozzy and a hooker till the cows come home. And I often feel bad that if I don't make that disclaimer, people might think it's okay for them to use those words as well and I'm like you've kind of got to be on, on a honorary hooker level before you can use those words yourself 
Yeah, you've got to at least like, imagine giving someone a hand job for five dollars at a party once to at least think you have you've dipped your toe into the world. I but that point you've just made then I think is a, a wonderful like thing to talk about, which is the idea of ownership of language versus language being used against. It's something that obviously comes up when we're talking about race. Um, you know, often in Australia, particularly white, you know, heteronormative australia um yeah that anything else is the other in that situation and you always have a lot of well if nick Giannopoulos can call himself a wog why can't i call people wogs um and i I went with what i thought was the mildest one and it still feels weird coming out of my mouth um that talk to me a little bit about, about the idea of you know ownership of language and how that gets used and and what you think your ideas are around that i think reclaiming words is great um I find almost the more offensive ones, uh, like, you know, hooker or prosy, I enjoy more than bad euphemisms, like when people, uh, oh, so you're a working girl or a lady of the night? <laughs> you can see them trying to find a way to say it politely and acceptably. And I'm like, that's a bit naff, isn't it? Um, so I wouldn't use those words myself. But I think the sex industry with language is a bit weird, though, like, our word for stigma against sex workers is whorephobia, which has the slur whore right there in the middle of it, which means the correct way for you to talk about stigma against sex worker is to talk about whorephobia, but then you've got to say whore. So it's a bit of a catch-22 there. Okay, so you imagined that perhaps you were going to talk about these things, but you thought perhaps the reaction from the audience might be one of... I don't know. Well, I mean, I think in, in in some ways that's, you know, the performer's mindset anyway. You know, the thing that you get asked most often about in interviews is the idea of, you know, what's the worst heckle? What's your, yeah, because these are the things that people are immediately terrified. Our mind goes to the idea that people will be yelling things out and they won't be supportive. And you've obviously got an extra layer of talking about something that sometimes people demonize in those ways, regardless of if it's somebody talking on stage or not. So, um, you're guarded, but what was their reaction? It was amazing. I took um, a bunch of friends who I knew would be supportive, obviously, but I'd also brought a few friends who didn't know I did sex work. They were improv friends that wanted to come along who I hadn't told. Um, and so they were all amazing and super supportive afterwards and didn't say anything weird or rude. And the audience was amazing. <laughs> My first five minutes was so good i felt like the king of the universe i was like this is where i'm meant to be i got laughs where all the laughs were meant to go it was incredible and so how long was it before you did your second set um i reckon i did it like a week later and i bombed terribly um it was i don't know i always think i don't think i bomb very often but i always think i've bombed you know when i've had maybe a couple of lines that don't land. I have decided I bombed terribly and everyone had a horrible time having to sit through my set for X amount of minutes. Um, but it was pretty quiet the second time. And yeah, I think I was still prepared for this heckling and people responding really badly to the kind of content I was talking about. I wasn't quite expecting it just not to be funny. <laughs> it was a lot more disappointing. Why um, do you think... Uh, also, like, I mean, I have a theory also that I think sometimes the first time you don't have any expectations, whereas the second time, you know, you've suddenly done it once and your expectations are different. 
you know, the second time because you already have those expectations. This was funny last time, therefore it will probably be funny again. And even that can stop you from, you know, saying it in the way that you said it last time, because instead of just, uh, yeah, getting to the laugh very naturally, you're anticipating the laugh and you're almost signaling it to the audience that it's about to come and that undermines it in a way. Yeah, and performance doesn't come naturally to me at all. I think writing comes quite naturally. I enjoy writing. I think I write good jokes, but actually getting on stage and being comfortable, I'm still not comfortable, but I was very uncomfortable at first. Like it took me, I reckon, at least six months to a year to feel comfortable even diverting from my script to any vague crowd work or, you know, I was terrified if I didn't have a word in the right place that the set would devolve and I'd have to run off in tears. Like performing is really hard for me. I I imagine a question that gets asked a lot and I can't tell if it's a, actually a terrible question or a, a an okay question. I don't, I don't I'm just going to ask it regardless and you can you know, say whatever you want to say. But uh, so sex work in no way prepares you for the idea of, um, because I think the link would be in some people's mind that if you can do something that takes, you know, the courage that sex work takes, that the courage of walking on stage in front of a room full of people perhaps wouldn't be as intimidating. Is that a completely naive and stupid thing to say? I think I'm so confident to perform one-on-one that it's a very different concept. It's funny because when I was doing my first version of my solo show, Charging For It, um, I had an actor in the show. We did a few sketches between the stand-up sets uh, and the actor was one of my best mates I've been doing sex work with for years. I was like, do you want to be in a comedy show? Can I make you do this? And so she did. And we would joke before we went on stage every night that we would feel so much more comfortable just doing a lesbian sex show for an hour for the audience because we're doubles partners when we do sex work in real life. We get people to book us for threesomes. I was like, yeah, I can make a performance of looking your butthole for an hour so easily. I've been doing it for a decade. I'm so confident. Whereas like, shit, what if we forget the lines? What if people don't laugh? It's very different. They are similar in some ways. Like I do think when I'm in my best place doing either comedy or sex work, it's me selling the best version of myself. Uh, You know, I'm either the perfect, charming, sexy girlfriend who's, you know, uh, I don't know quite how to put it, but you know when you're in the zone on stage as well and you feel like you're just the funniest and most charming charismatic person you're the best friend of everybody in the audience like it's a very similar mode to be in I think it's just the size of the audience is what scares me and makes it feel different did you have preconceived ideas about what what aspects of sex work you were going to be comfortable to talk about and what aspects that you felt you might because I I imagine because there's not a heap of people who talk about sex work in comedy there's some but there's not like a heap or or there might not be a heap who are talking about full service sex work you know in, in stand-up comedy and it, I just imagine you would maybe had some thoughts and rules around what it is you thought you know was appropriate to share and what wasn't appropriate to share um I will share anything and everything I don't know if you want to get into this already but I think it very much leads into my philosophy on life um, if you're ready for that, I can share it with you. Let's do it. Yeah, and that's the... I'm um, ready. Authenticity will draw people to you. 
I think people kind of tell you, oh, be yourself. And that means be a nice, honest person. But to me, be yourself is like, let everybody who's listening to Willosophy right now know that sometimes you pick your girlfriend's scabs because it's fun. Or um, authenticity is I get on stage and I do a really long bit in my show about the time I did a brown shower. Um, I took a shit on somebody for money. You know, it's the really ugly warts and all stuff. When you share that, people respond to that. People will be drawn to you. Like, embrace the weirdest, most fucked up things about yourself and don't be afraid to share them. Inappropriate situations, obviously. Don't do it on the tram to strangers. So, when did this philosophy develop? Is this something that you've always instinctively had as part of your personality or is this something that you have, a philosophy that you've come to as an adult for, in, in some way um, I definitely started off as a really weird kid I was always the weird kid at school like I remember doing things like um, one day I was late to school for some reason so I cut up some little pieces of cotton and glue sticked them to my head to look like what I thought stitches would look like so I could tell everybody when I got to school that I'd been in a car accident just so I had a great gory story <laughs> um I remember also going through a phase where I would wear a high ponytail on my head with a scrunchie, but then I'd put another scrunchie on top and another one and layer them till I had like an antenna sticking up on my... Like, I was just a really odd child. And I think that kind of got bullied out of me by high school. I was bullied horribly in high school. And I squelched a lot of those aspects of my personality where I was weird and different because I wanted to fit in which I guess most of us kind of do as teenagers. And it took me, I think, until my 20s again to start embracing that I was a bit of a weirdo and that that was okay. Uh, was the bullying... Uh, I mean, again, I, it, it, this is one of those podcasts where sometimes I'll ask things and if you don't want to talk talk, talk about them, we don't need to talk about them. But um, bullying at high school is something that I think about a lot. Um, I think partly because I have you know nephews and nieces who are sort of in that range of ages now and you start to see yeah they go from that age where they don't seem to have any mean friends to that age where you start to go oh you're a mean kid and you're being mean to these people and I try to reflect on what my high school upbringing was and I think I was probably one of those people who occasionally felt bullied and occasionally probably you know did some bullying like not things that I would have ever considered at the time to be bullying but you know, you, you're either the one who's being bullied or you're at least appeasing or fitting in with the, laughing along at the jokes of the, the proper bullies so that you're not the one being bullied. And I reflect on that a lot and, you know, kind of wish and wonder. I think mostly I was pretty good, but I still can clearly identify times where if I had my time over again, I would have preferred to make different decisions. Like, can you talk to me a little bit about that bullying experience and what it was like for you? Yeah, and I had a very similar experience of being on both ends of it. The first high school I went to, I don't know, I was just wildly uncool. Didn't have friends. Nobody liked me. I was the weird kid. I was Bush Pig in high school. That was my name. Um, and by the time I got to year nine, like your second year of high school in Perth, um, I'd had enough to the point where my mum finally let me change schools. And then I became like uh, middle level popular, like not quite the nerds, but slightly above that. And I definitely took part in bullying the people that were beneath me at that point. Didn't instigate it, but yeah, if it was happening, I'd definitely pile on and get involved. And it's funny, I thought about that recently because I've been looking back on 
like the sex work I've been doing for a while now. And sometimes sex work is a lot like high school. I realized I got bullied mercilessly in my first sex work job in a dungeon. Um, I was working in BDSM and I had another sex worker who just made my life hell. And then when I moved into other brothels and became, you know, not so low down on the rungs, I know I made other girls' lives miserable that were newer and knew less than me. So I think it's a pattern that kind of reflects even into adulthood. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah. So it's the systems in place. I mean, so often these systems really do give us that, I mean, and, and that's often when we reflect on things that we've done poorly in our lives. And I think it's important that we do reflect on them and reconcile with them and, and you know, learn from those experiences. But so many, many times when you look back on it, and it's when we have these conversations around, you know, the relationships that, you know, men and women have and the way that those relationships are portrayed to us and the roles of men and women in our society and the various demonizations of industries and all these sort of things. I get angry not because I was a person who was persecuted. I'm a you know white straightish man. You know, mostly I'm on the side of the persecutor, not the persecutee. But the truth is that I feel damaged by those systems as well. I wish that I had grown up in a world where we weren't forced into those systems. And many of the things that I look back on in my life, I think it wasn't just the marginalized people who are being damaged by say, these systems. It's the so-called privileged people who are also being damaged by the same the same systems. Anyway, you don't need to um, have an opinion on that. I just, it is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. So when does sex work start? You say the dungeon. So how do you find yourself in a BDSM dungeon? Well, that was actually my second life of sex work. I actually got started really early. Uh, I was 18 and I'd always been curious about the sex industry. And I walked past a sex shop near my share house in Perth and it had a sign in the window that said dancers wanted. And I wasn't quite sure exactly what the dancing in a sex shop involved, but I had a vague idea. So I went in um, and that's how I got a job as a peep show girl. So I was the peep show girl for quite a few years where you go and put coins in and there's a foggy glass window and it unfogs for a minute and there's a nice lady fingering herself on the other side of the window for you. Um, that was my first sex industry job. And from there, I did some stripping in clubs as well. It's actually quite a COVID-friendly COVID sex work, if you think about it. You know, everyone's nicely, hermetically sealed off from each other. This this might be the future, the $2 peeps. I hadn't even thought of that. We should be petition, petitioning Dan Andrews right now to reopen peep shows. I don't care about football, but let's get Club X back open. You've solved all of our problems, I think. That's great. <laughs> it feels to me like a, a good entry-level sex work job. because. Yes. It is definitely sex work, but it's like, like you said, everyone is kind of behind glass. What is the actual, um, what's your day like doing that? Is it like exciting? Is it boring? Is it tiring? Is it like constant? Is it intermittent? Like, I have some curiosity around that. Are you, are you okay to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Peep shows are so boring. It's intermittent. The best peep show I worked at was one in Melbourne City, which has a TV in one corner of the peep show box that the clients can't see, but we can. So I would watch MTV constantly. Got really into Laguna Beach for a while. And when clients would put <laughs> coins in the box, like they'd turn up and I'd get the little ping that it's your time to start masturbating for the guy. And... I'd be kind of like diddling myself with one eye sort of above the window, still trying to watch Laguna Beach. 
The other thing I think people find funny, I was talking about this with a mate who used to do peep shows um, with the other day, and we were really surprised to find out we had the same experience of this. We both found that um, while you were fake masturbating all day, occasionally between clients, you'd actually rub out a real one. Because, like, the kind of masturbation you're doing to put on a show is all very fake and probably not what gets you off anyway. And after doing that all day, sometimes you've got five minutes between coins and you're like, I'm just going to rub one out in this way that doesn't look sexy or hot at all. And then get back to your day of performing fake orgasms for the glass windows. That's I'm, that's going to be my reboot reboot of the peeps. When when I when we have a peep show led sex work recovery that I'm now in charge of, I've decided <laughs> based on this, I'm certainly going to have a new niche, which is just people masturbating normally. Like it's kind of you know like a hipster take on peep shows. You know, I just want to go in and see people how they actually get themselves off. Yep, she's laying stomach down. To be honest, mate, you're not going to see anything, but that's that's how she gets off. So. That's actually going to make you one of the most annoying types of clients. It makes you the authentic pleasure man, as we call it, in full service, or I guess most aspects of the sex industry. And that's the client who's like, it isn't about me. I just want to see you get off. It's all about having a good time for you. But then they don't really want to follow your directions on how you like to receive certain sexual activities and you've really got to end up faking an orgasm for them anyway so that they can feel like they got their authentic experience of you coming. <laughs> yeah, I think I could be that annoying person. No doubt. <laughs> okay, so how long uh, How long are the peep show? How long, like, I mean, as in of years, months, weeks, are you working at the peep shows? I was doing that and stripping in clubs between about 18 and 21. And then I got so burnt out by the sex industry like I don't think people realize quite especially working in strip clubs it's a sales job and it's physically demanding and you're working these long nights and I mean you pay a house fee to work in a strip club you actually pay them the pleasure like 50 to 100 bucks just so that you can go and be an independent contractor and try and hustle a room um it's hard work and I was, yeah, really burnt out and decided it was time to go and join the real world. And I went and did a bunch of hospo and call centers and retail and admin and all the things you do when you're not qualified to do anything else. And when I was about 26, 27, I decided I wanted to get back into the sex industry. And that's how the BDSM dungeon thing happened. Okay, so I, I, definitely, I definitely want to talk about that. But just before we get to that, I'm, I'm interested in the broader spectrum of all these things because you know if like and i i say if at the start of this sentence but sex work is work like i think anyone who's ever listened to this podcast knows that that's absolutely my opinion and um you know there's been you know several other sex workers who've done this show before i think people probably are very clear with where i stand on this and but from a a customer provider point of view what could the customers be doing better in those circumstances that are the things that they are doing poorly at the moment. Because at the end of the day, like you, you're essentially there for the same thing, right? Like the, if I assume that if you ask in the right way and you're appropriate in the way that you ask for it, the provider of that service is happy to provide it. And there, there are a whole bunch of things that get in the way of that. What are the major things? What are the major mistakes that people are making 
in those situations that they could do better so everybody's experience is better in those in those occasions um my number one tip is to buy into the fantasy uh the worst thing in sex work is having someone being like are you really into this are you really getting off on this do you really like me how do you do this you must see so many gross guys am i a gross guy it's like you're paying me to tell this lie to you like that's what you just spent X amount of dollars on. It's for us to pretend that we are in a secret fantasy world in which I'm your hot girlfriend who wants nothing more than to suck your dick right now and laugh at your jokes. Like, that's what we're doing. And if you are trying to crack away at that fantasy, I'm like, why would you do that to yourself? You know, I find something to like in pretty much all of my clients. I'm very rarely there thinking, God, I hate this asshole. Get me out of here. I mean, I, I definitely have those, but it's not the majority of them um so it's so frustrating when I found something that I like about a client and I'm channeling into that and I'm doing my best job and he's just you couldn't really be into this like no you're killing it mate I'm doing my job you've just got to do yours as well pretend that this is real yeah when I tell you you, on a Sunday afternoon at a six o'clock show that you're the best audience I've ever performed in front of, just believe it when I say it. It's not true. We both know it's not true, but we're all going to have a much better time if you believe that I'm having a great time. Yes, 100%. No one has a hangover. It's fine. <laughs> um, okay, that's, that's good advice. I like that. That's the, buy into what it is. You've, you've, you've signed up to it. There's no point chipping away at the nature of the reality now. Um, okay, so you you go away, you go back into normie world for a little while and you decide, I want to go back into sex work world, but you don't go back to strip, strip clubs and you don't go to peep shows. You go to a BDSM dungeon. Now, is this because that was an area of sexuality that you were personally interested in anyway or was it circumstance? What, what took you to a dungeon? I had two things. I'd been in like a long-term relationship with a girl that was quite vanilla um and I think our sex life had kind of died out after many years and there was part of me that was interested in exploring kinky and fetishy things and also I met a professional dominatrix I met this incredible woman from Sydney who was just this cold hard powerful woman that everyone knew was this professional mistress and I thought she was the coolest person in the world I was like I work in a call center. Imagine just wearing a lot of latex and beating guys up for a few hours a day and, you know, smoking a cigarette out of a cigarette holder. And oh, I just had this great image of her life. So I asked her about it and she set me up to work in a dungeon uh, in Melbourne. Yeah, that changed my life pretty dramatically. What's that like? I mean, it's not an area of like some of the stuff you've talked about already, like I've either at least had some experience of or can I, I can imagine the experience of. But we're moving into an area now which is a little bit foreign from my sort of, you know, sexual worldview, BDSM. So, and, and in both ways. It's just never been anything I've been particularly interested in in either of the roles, you know. Um, so maybe I'm a little vanilla as well <laughs> now that I say that out loud. But it's just... You know, whatever you know, various kinks I have and everybody else has, and I'm not here to kink shame anybody. For I, I just am interested in what the, what what is what is it about, BDSM? Like what what is what is it actually about? Oh man, I think it's about completely different things for different people. The scope of it is so mm. huge. Like I had no idea before I worked in it that. I mean, even just individual fetishes. Like you could be really into cross dressing, and that could be because 
your secret desire is to be a pretty princess or it could be because your secret desire is to be horribly humiliated or you could want to be a dirty slut like mentally people come at every single fetish from like a million different angles um i don't know there's such a wide breadth and depth of human sexuality it's crazy i I didn't know i thought there would be some tying people up and some hitting people and yeah i ended up doing i ended up doing a lot of sploshing which is like food play where you throw cakes at each other and roll around in jelly um I ended up doing forced tickling sessions. I mean, I got got to be honest with you, the tickling's not my thing, but the cake thing sounds kind of interesting. Okay, so it's super fun until you have to get to the cleanup, and then you're like, <laughs> "Who's like who decided tinned spaghetti was going to be hot? It was you, you jerk!" And now I've got to clean it up. Uh, okay, so the dungeon. How long's how long is the dungeon? And at that stage, is this a full sex sex work situation, or is this purely a kind of um, I don't know? Like, I mean, a, a non. I, I don't know exactly what the terminology of what I'm trying to say is, but I'm sure that you understand what I'm trying to say. I understand you. Yeah, this was. I think the idea of a BDSM dungeon is that there's not really sex involved whereas I found pretty much every session in a dungeon ends with you giving a hand job I think the hand job is pretty customary not everyone wants it but I think you're pretty much expected to do it if you want to work in that industry um there was also a lot of body worship so that's a lot of you know me as the mistress commanding you to pleasure me with your tongue like it's the dominant position for me to be forcing you to go down on me. So there is that kind of sexual contact involved, um, but it's definitely not the penetrative kind of sex that you would be having in a full service brothel. Um, So I was doing about that level of sexuality and that went on for a year and I hated it. I hated working in BDSM when I was doing stuff like the body worship where I was just commanding guys to go down on me. I was like, God, this is so easy. Literally just have to tell you to like eat me out right now and boss you around a little bit. When I had to do, you know, like the cross-dressing session where I had to work out if you were a sissy or a slut or a princess and suddenly come up with a scenario and a script and do all of that stuff. That's hard work. That's acting work. You've got to be directing the whole show. There's props, there's costumes, there's whistles. And I know a lot of sex workers who are in BDSM who are just like, it's so fun, it's so creative, I get to do all of these things. And I just found, I was like, God, how much easier is it when someone just goes down on me? Like, I find this so much less mentally stressful. Um, And that's how I moved into working in brothels instead. It just seemed like so much easier a deal once you got past the stigma of, you know, am I a prostitute then? So I... Maybe you needed to take the six months of improv classes before the BDSM dungeon is what I'm hearing, <laughs> basically. But <laughs> it is conceiving a show. I mean, it probably makes sense that when you've gone to do your first, you know, sort of you know, one-woman show, it's become this, like, award-winning thing because you've got so much experience over the years constructing these scenarios. But So you go to a, a brothel first, and I'm very interested and curious about, like, you know, the sex work industry when it comes to... I mean, most of the information, uh, you know, the good information that I get is from, I follow a lot of sex workers online and I'm really interested in trying to engage in, well, engage in, and when I say engage in, listen to and read and, 
you know, about the various different laws. And, and obviously, I think we'll probably get to some of the, you know, current conversation around COVID in a little while. Um, and, you know, what that means for the sex industry, because obviously it's one of the, you know, tricky trickier areas and you know but if i don't think that if i was not following these people and reading you know the points of view put forward by people within the industry i would necessarily understand this i think you know in the general public there's just a sort of sense of well you know if you're a you know a prostitute to use that word but if you're like you know a sex worker that it is just basically all the same thing, but it is—it's not really, is it? Um, no. What do you mean? As in? Well, so tell me about brothels versus independent work for a start. Ah, uh, cool. And what that experience is like. Yeah, well, I do both. Um, I'm pretty much just independent now, but brothels—you've got a place. There's maybe 15 girls hanging out on the shift. Guys turn up, uh, and when they do, they sit in the little room. And each girl goes in and gives a 30-second spiel about who she is and what she does. And then hopefully he picks one or he just wastes your time because he came in for a squiz and he's going to leave anyway. Uh, But, yeah, then you go into a room, you do a health check and inspect his junk to make sure there's nothing visibly uh, weeping or open wound-like. And then you have sex. Um, There's cuddling and kissing and chatting probably as well. But yeah, 30 minute and one hour blocks and you try and do as many of those as you can in like an eight hour shift. So when you first start it, when you first sort of walk, walk, walk through the door, how prepared for that moment are you? Well, how prepared did you think you were and how prepared actually were you in, in retrospect? Um, I was terrified. I was so scared. I had no idea if anyone wanted to have sex with me for money, I had no idea what the other women looked like. If I was a garden troll compared to, I was about to walk into a village of supermodels. Like I was so, so scared. Um, and I think it was a little bit like the stand up comedy thing where I first went and went, Oh, actually I'm pretty okay. I could do fine with this. The bar of entry is not actually as high as I thought it was. This is fine. God, that sounds so mean in <laughs> retrospect. There's a place for everyone in the sex industry. I think, uh, but I actually cheated a little bit. When I say I went to a brothel, I actually went to a rub and tug, which was like a erotic massage happy ending place. But it was also legally a brothel, so people could charge extra to do sex on premises. Um, but you didn't have to do it there. And the reason I chose that is because I wasn't quite sure I could have sex with anybody that walked in off the street. I was like, yep, I can give you a massage and the hand job. And then if I feel like it, I can say, oh yeah, sex is $50 extra. And I found out very quickly that you get real annoyed when you're only getting paid like 50 bucks for your massage. You're like, I'll have sex with anybody. I don't care. I want my full rate. Like, you get over that idea so quickly of like, ew, gross, sex with a stranger. Like, one person just becomes the same as every other person. You've got to have really bad personal hygiene for me to not want to have sex with you. Like, things like, I guess, ugliness or things we assume would be a problem. You just get over it. It's like interacting with human bodies. They all become the same. If if it's someone's first time uh, in one of those situations, I'm talking about a customer now, not the provider any tips for first timers let them know up front when you have that little intro bit where you meet the girls let them know it's your first time either having sex all together or with an escort or a provider there's nothing worse than 
I've done bookings with men that have been a bit strange, awkward and weird and I've been tired and it's like my fifth booking for the day anyway so I'm kind of phoning it in and then afterwards they're like, oh yeah, that was my first time. And I'm like, oh my god, if you'd told me I would have put so much more effort in. Don't just pretend you know what you're doing and you're going to wing it. Like, we're professionals, we're experts, we can, you know, help manage your expectations and... Yeah, it, you need to know. So um, then how long – so you start in brothels um, uh, and you still work in brothels sometimes now? I think it's been maybe six months, a little bit more since I've done a brothel shift. I've been working as an independent escort for four years now. So I think I was three years in that I started doing independent escorting. And I had this idea that once you go from being a brothel girl to a private escort, you suddenly your belle de jour and secret diary of a call girl and <laughs> very nice men book you weeks in advance to go visit them at the Park Hyatt and you wear Louboutins and it's all very nice. And in reality, it's a massively oversaturated market. In Melbourne, it's a massively oversaturated market of girls that look like me, which is girl next door with a lot of tattoos. There's <laughs> seven million of us. Um, and it was slow. It took me, yeah, three years of not having to also work at a brothel on the side to be doing that exclusively. So, yeah. What's the community like? Because obviously, you know, you are you know, providers in a competitive market. As you said, if there's a whole bunch of people who, you know, present as you present, you know, you're suddenly got a lot of competition for, you know, that that aspect of the market. Is there camaraderie amongst workers? Is it a community where you can rely on other people for advice or, you know, um, sort of, you know, a collegiate atmosphere? I mean, I'm sure it's like everything in that it's all of the things, but what is your general impression of, you know, the sex work industry as a place to actually work. It is so great. Hookers are the best people in the world. We love each other. We have each other's backs. I think maybe there's this idea that we're all really catty and it's a cutthroat competition and it's absolutely not. And you're always going to get some bad eggs here and there. But as a whole, we all love each other and celebrate each other. I think we're all in this highly stigmatized position. Um where we've got to have each other's backs and things like Twitter have been great for that, especially if you're working independently and not in brothels. Um, everyone's got to be on Twitter to promote themselves as an independent escort these days. So it m makes for a lot of friendships on Twitter as well between us. Yeah. I, I mean, when you were doing your show, I certainly saw a, a bunch of, you know, sex workers who were being really supportive of your show and promoting it and say that they'd, come along to see it and stuff like that so that was the impression that I got you know but it's it's always interesting to ask what is the major stigma still do you think what's the major stigma that sex work still faces in our society is it still a sort of puritanical religious thing or is it much more about government legislation what is it about what what's the major stigma that needs to be broken down that is that that is standing in the way of I don't know, you know, sex work being treated the same as any other type of work. Yeah, I think it is still that puritanical kind of sex is icky and is for two people that love each other attitude. Um, 
it's funny because we keep getting further and further into a culture that wants to co-opt a sex worker aesthetic you know instagram is full of girls that want to be strippers and everyone wants that kim kardashian vibe and everyone's gotten only fans these days you know like i feel like sex work has become very mainstream in a lot of ways um as long as you're not actually having sex for money because that's disgusting I feel like there's a, such a firm... We're getting so much closer to people being really interested in sex workers. And, I mean, even the fact that people have gotten as interested in my comedy as they have. You know, like, people want to hear about it. But there's just this line that we can't quite get past, I think. The reality of having sex for money is just seems to be disgusting to people. It's, it's fascinating to me. So what does that mean in a legal sense because you can have whatever moral arguments that you want to have i guess at the end of the day people can have their own morality and they can you know decide to rule their lines wherever they want to rule their lines i'm not here to you know judge what yeah people want to do in their own homes whether it be completely kinky or completely not kinky you know that's absolutely fine but when we get out then into a public field uh, you know the fact that we share this world and the way that we share this world is through rules and guidelines and government regulations what's the current state of the industry when it comes to regulations in australia and you know how they affect you know the acceptance of the industry in general i don't know how it affects how people are accepted in general but Basically, the ideal model is decriminalisation, and we've got that in New South Wales, and we've got that in the Northern Territory, um, and that means that sex work is kind of treated like any other business, and that you know there's still like a, a bar or a restaurant, there's rules to adhere to and licensing, but it's not a criminal offence. Um, Sorry, I always feel really terrible trying to explain the legal technicalities and the difference between decriminalization and legalization because it's so not something I know a lot about. I feel like I've wound up in this quite political situation because doing comedy about sex work has is like inherently political. Um, whereas I never really saw myself as an activist or somebody who actually knows about these things, but I have now wound up talking about them. So I always hope I'm not fucking them up when I do. But have you, have you felt, because I think what you're saying is absolutely right. Like the very act of going out there and being somebody was saying these things out loud immediately makes you somebody that people are going to listen to. And you're also representing people, whether you want to or not, you are, because until there's, you know, 50 or 100 or 200 comedians who are also sex workers, then what you're saying is going to be, you know, or sex workers who are news readers or current affairs hosts or whatever else it is, people who, you know, are able to have a public narrative around issues. I guess you are going to be asked these sort of questions a lot. So have you, like, have you taken that on board a little? Is there a little bit of you that said, well, I better know these things a little bit better because I am going to be asked about them? Yeah, absolutely. While I was at um, Adelaide Fringe Festival this year, I went and met with SIN, which is like a sex worker peer-run organisation there that are working to decriminalise sex work uh, in South Australia. So um, I got to learn a little bit, bit about the ins and outs over there. It's actually really interesting in Adelaide because South Australia is the only state in Australia where it's still illegal uh, to be a full-service sex worker. So you can be arrested for – you can't have a brothel, you can't be an independent escort. It is all completely illegal over there. And, of course, people are still working because sex work is going to happen whether it's legal or not. But 
it's a pretty scary prospect and it's so weird that you can go to Sydney where it's you know pretty much a free-for-all and then go to Adelaide and you can be arrested for it. How has it been during this pandemic? Because obviously, you know, in a time where we're socially distancing, a lot of sex work probably doesn't involve social distance. And now I also understand, you know, one of the best arguments that I've, I've you know, seen online and it makes complete sense is there's probably nobody who cares more about hygiene and hygienic practices than people who work in the sex work industry. So ahead of the game on actually, you know, making sure that your contact with people is happening in a hygienic way previous to this. But regardless of that, um, you know, sex work seems like one of those things that people immediately go, well, that can't be happening. Now we're at this time when society is opening back up again and, uh, but we don't have a, you know, a vaccine for COVID. Um, what's what what effect has that had on the sex work industry and how is the sex work industry reopening at the moment um well i guess the massive shift was so many people turned to making online content like so many full service sex workers and strippers that didn't have a place to go anymore um started making porn and videos and photo sets and selling them online and i think found that the reality of that is it's very hard work for very little money i haven't done it I take a selfie and I'm like, oh God, I look terrible. What? Does my butt look like that? How do I even get a photo from that angle? Jesus. Like, I, it wasn't for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're just starting to, we were just starting to open up again in Victoria until suffers just started locking back down again. But I thought it was pretty ridiculous when I saw that in the stage three opening plan, you could have saunas and bathhouses and tattoo parlors and massage parlors were allowed open, but brothels and strip clubs weren't. I'm like, in a strip club, they've got social distancing down pat. Like, that's already a place where if you would try and touch a girl, there is a security guard there about to scream no touching at you for trying, you know, like... As you said, we, we are the experts on PPE and making sure that we're sanitized and safe. Well, that is, I mean, clearly the mistake they made with the people who were in the hotels, they hired the wrong security guards because that's where it spread in Melbourne. They needed to get some strip club security guards who would have just been, anytime somebody went too close, would have been right in there. Yeah, they're like lifting you up by the collar and telling you, <laughs> throwing you down the hallway. Yeah, you need strip club bouncers. <laughs> that's what went wrong. Uh, okay, so um, what about yourself then? Have you dipped your toe back in the sex work w waters? Um, yeah, I've just gone back. So they made independent work legal again a couple of weeks ago in Victoria. So I started seeing some of my regular clients again. Um, geez, people really want to have sex again. My phone, my work phone is running hot. I'm not seeing new people at the moment. So I don't know. It seems like it would be very busy if you wanted to just take anything that was out there right now. I think people are very horny. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, there's been a real lack of social distancing and people really want to get in a professional environment to break their social distancing. It makes sense to me. So do you have a philosophy um, rather than a general life philosophy? I'm interested in, do you have specific philosophies to um, comedy and do you have a philosophy to sex work and I'm talking about I guess the performance of them and your attitude what you try to achieve you know from them I mean it could be something as simple as 
my major motivation is financial, but it might not be either. I'm, I, I guess that's the reason I ask the question and don't answer the questions. So do you have a philosophy to, I mean, I do stand up comedy to make money, but it's not the only reason that I do stand up comedy. Um, so do you have a philosophy to either of those things, to both those things? Do they have anything in common? Um, I think for comedy, definitely, um, is that I always feel a bit like the underdog and I love proving people wrong. I like proving that I can do things that people have told me I can't. Um, I started writing my solo show six months after I'd done my first open mic and I think people thought that was crazy, ridiculous and stupid and told me as such and I was performing it within having done a year of starting comedy and I got nominated for Best Comedy at Melbourne Fringe for that. Um, yeah, I, I like that people are like, it's the weird little hooker, what's she doing? And are surprised when I'm successful at it. I just, yeah, that's that's my theory. Uh, this might be uh, an impolite question, um, but is there crossover? Like, are there people who come and see both your shows if to put, yes. it, to put it that way fans of both your work oh yeah so this is a really fun one actually so i used to be an independent escort called chelsea i had this private persona and then i started doing comedy so i started making social media accounts for bella green and then i started wanting to reach out to sex workers on social media because i wanted them to see my shows but clients are on social media as well so my bella green persona started appearing amongst uh, all the clients of the world and I thought bugger it let's like get one step ahead of them and I rebranded my private escort persona as Bella Green so I am one and the same everywhere I don't have an alias for sex work I have my personal Twitter and Instagram are the same ones I link to my advertising for sex work and yeah, I brand myself as a very authentic experience. Uh, you know, if you want to see someone who makes stupid jokes and might get on stage and tell a story about something you did in a booking, uh, you can go for it. And that is surprisingly appealing to clients. My business like took off heaps when I did that. And most of my clients, I wouldn't say most of them, but most of my regs have been to my show. Um, yeah, I, I've gotten clients from the show. I did a show in Perth at Perth Fringe and the next day I had a booking while I was there and uh, as I was starting to get undressed for the client, he said to me, oh, well, show us that mint rack then, would you? And I make a joke about a client telling me I have a mint rack during my show and I was just like, what? He's like, do you understand the reference? I'm like, I wrote the reference, mate. <laughs> like, but at yeah, first it I was- I understand the reference. I, I'm the one who gets it. <laughs> <laughs> it was shocking to me at first that people would want to see me get on stage and say some pretty appalling things and talk about the time I took a shit on somebody in a BDSM dungeon and still book me for a nice girlfriend experience time, but they do. And that's that same thing of people want authenticity, I guess. People want to feel like they know the real you, even if it's a bit weird. I, I, I'm. It makes me feel good to hear that. That feels like a good thing to me. It feels like if it had gone the other way... it would have said something terrible about us, but that it's gone that way feels like it says actually something quite nice about us, which I which I like. Puts paid to the idea also that uh, men aren't attracted to funny women. So yeah. I think that's good. I get so many that are so tickled by the fact that I'm a comedian and I'm like, that's funny because a lot of the men in the open mic comedy scene, I don't think are particularly tickled by the fact that I'm a comedian. That that I mean, that's a like a said with a laugh, but 
I am interested in that because I'm particularly interested at the moment about I did a little uh, uh, Andrea Powell, who's a, an amazing you know Melbourne comedian, and she just did this hilarious character called Ethel Chop, and she's now doing uh, an online comedy writing. Well, a, a, you know, like a, a you know a course in for people to learn how to do comedy writing and to do stand up comedy. And so during this lockdown time, one of the things she's been doing is getting comics to come and speak to these you know potential comedians about the industry and about how they write and all these sort of things and i had a really great conversation because it happened to be 10 men and uh so i she asked me at the end she said do you have any advice and i said well i'd actually really just love us to have a conversation about you know the industry itself because i love stand-up comedy and it's been an incredibly you know generous industry to me and also I've been lucky to see a lot of the generous side of it. So much of the generous side of it has been surrounded me and surrounded my life. And, you know, what that probably meant that was my eyes were just not suitably open to the fact that I always thought the worst stuff was the exception rather than the rule. And now that we see both here and internationally so many stories of people saying, well, no, here's my experience of being in the comedy industry and it's actually not a pleasant experience. An experience of, you know, sexual harassment or it's an experience of, like, me being told that I'm not meant to belong here, I'm not worthy to be here, that I'm not being respected within this industry. And these are things that, you know, disappoint me, but not just disappoint me because I'm sad that it's my industry, but disappoint me because I am one of the leaders of the industry. And if it is that on at least my watch then I think I feel like I have at least the responsibility to be having conversations around how can we make this better so really I just opened it up to them about how it could be more inclusive and how they could treat other people and I was so pleased to hear at least in that forum their attitudes and their understanding of how comedy had been a male dominated industry and it can often be particularly a white straight male dominated industry and it could be not necessarily the most welcoming place for different voices of all kinds i can imagine and maybe i'm completely wrong here but your joke just before made me think that perhaps i'm not that having your background and with what you're talking about combined with being a new comedian on a scene that will be filled with you know a lot of you know young men you know anyway that's that's my long-winded run-up to asking you how the comedy industry has been in its inclusiveness and invitiveness to to you and your story. Um, I'll preface it by saying that I haven't really had any bad experiences um, with men in stand-up comedy. I've had a few people make inappropriate comments, um, and but I, yeah, definitely haven't had outright harassment or abuse, as I have realized so many of the other women I know in comedy have. That's been trending a lot on Twitter at the moment, just seeing how universal that experience seems to be. I think I'm very lucky that I haven't. Um, I think for me, there's a cold shoulder towards women when we come into stand-up comedy. I didn't feel welcomed or particularly accepted. There are definitely some exceptions amongst the guys who were nice and made me feel welcome. But um, for the most part, you come into stand-up comedy as a woman and some other woman grabs you and is like, hey, come join us, be one of us, help. Like Claire Hagen, who took me under her wing to get me started, 
you know, I've then done that for every other woman I've seen by herself at an open mic night where I've been like, hey, come join the gang. I'll add you to our Facebook group. Here's the open mic nights to go to. Do you want a buddy? We'll come with you. Like the women look after each other so much because we know it's intimidating and scary and that the guys probably aren't going to be particularly nice to you. Um, but as a sex worker, it's actually interesting. I think I benefit a lot from that. I think people do want to be diverse and have diverse lineups even if they just want to be seen as having diverse lineups, which, to be honest, is kind of the same thing, really. Um, I think I've gotten a lot of booked as the token diverse person, and I've loved that. It's been very beneficial to me. Um, so there's two sides to it. I what's do an think- easier gig as a comedian? What's the easier gig? Uh, on a lineup where you are the story that isn't like other people's stories? Or is it an easier gig in a room where, you know, the night might be dedicated to, you know, hearing, you know, what might be described as alternative voices in the scene? They shouldn't be, but like, you know, but you understand the delineation I'm making here. If you land on a regular lineup as sort of the, you know, diverse person on the lineup versus that other gig, which is the easier show generally? I reckon it's actually easier being the diverse voice at a more mainstream show to be honest I think also when you have more diverse shows or queer or alternative based ones um, the audiences are so polite like I found one of the best places I've done stand-up was in Darwin Um, because in Darwin they're not PC and they're not fucking around and in Brunswick, people are scared to laugh at my sex worker jokes sometimes because they don't know if they're allowed to. Um, in Darwin, no one had any problems getting straight on board. I think it's easier being in the mainstream place and being the alternative voice, to be honest. Uh, what are your comedic aspirations? Do you have comedic aspirations? Like, do you have dreams of like what you would love to do with your comedy? I mean, two and a half years... That's, that feels to me like prime dreaming time. If I look back on, you know, my career as a comedian, you've done enough that you can see that there is some potential to dream and then you can start having these. And this is like a, I, I like to hope that this show is a very safe place. And I know that it's hard to ask people to, you know, say what their, yeah, their dream board might be, their vision board might be, because some people think that that, I don't know, there's some false humility or something, but I love to hear what people's dreams and aspirations are about what they would like to do with their work. Uh, It's so weird being in the position I'm in now because, like, yeah, I just got back from Adelaide Fringe where I won Best Comedy there this year with my first show, which is insane. Like, that's not even something I dreamt about. I was like, I'm going to Adelaide for the first time. How much money am I about to lose? Will anybody come to my show? So I'm kind of, at the moment, I'm like, it'd be nice to go to Edinburgh if that was possible again. Like I have very small expectations right now. When you say it and I'm like, oh, dream big, what do you want? I'm like, I don't know, being on Netflix one day might be nice, but I'd just like to write a second show that I'm really proud of, to be honest. I've written one and I think it's pretty bloody good. And now I think I'm going to have difficult second album syndrome and I just, yeah, I'd like to write a show that I feel is as good as my second, as my first show was. That's my main aim. Well, tell me, tell me what made your first show good then. What was it about the show? How did it become more than just a, an hour of, you know, stand-up jokes? How did it become an award-winning show? What was the conception and the dream of, of that show that took it to there? The two things that I think make my show really work is... 
one, my jokes about are about sex work, but the butt of my jokes are never really sex workers or clients for that matter. The butt of all of my jokes is the way society sees sex work. Um, you know, my punchlines ro- revolve around things like why guys that go to brothels are similar to me trying to shop for things at the chemist. Like, we both pretend we're not there all the time and always trying to score the same thing. Like, just, they're about the mundane ways in which my job is just like anybody else's job and I think that really resonates with people because they never think about the sex industry that way um and the other thing that makes it successful is my incredible director uh, Anna Piper Scott who is a much better comedian than me and yeah directed my show and took it to another level altogether and is also my romantic partner so (laughs) So I'm a fan of Anna's also. I think just, uh, again, not somebody that I know in real life, but have seen the work that she's been doing and just like, you know, someone that I'm interested in following online and, you know, just somebody who seems like a very vibrant part of the comedy community now in regard to creating shows and interesting experiences and all these sort of things. Where did that go from being uh, a work relationship to a romantic relationship? Well, I caught her solo show, Queer and Present Danger, at Melbourne Fringe last year. And, like, she was an acquaintance from around the scene before that. But I just saw how sharp and funny and vulnerable and tender that show was. And I was, like, a little bit in awe of her. So I asked her to direct my show. Um, And, yeah, I guess there's something about being completely vulnerable with another person and handing over your baby to them and being like, please be gentle but firm at the same time with this and I'll try and trust you. Um, And we fell in love and she's my best creative collaborator now, which is pretty amazing. And do you think that you guys will continue to work together? Like, is that something that, like when you talk about second show, do you imagine it will be something that you two will, you know, work on together in the same way as you worked on your first show? Yeah, we started plotting out my second show just this week, uh, being very bored in quarantine together. Um, There's always that worry where I'm like, oh, is it Anna who's brilliant and not me? Like, I slightly worry about that, but it's also just so easy to create with her. She's just so instinctive and we work together so well that I'm like, it would be stupid not to do this again. But when I did it the first time, I was like, we're working on a show together and I'm not going to be performing this show for another three months. Like, if I sleep with you right now and it's terrible, this is the worst decision I've ever made in my life. And thank God it wasn't. (laughs) Uh, So do you have a love philosophy? Like, is there a relationship philosophy that you have? What sort of... um you know, worldview do you have when it comes to romance and relationships? Oh, go for it. Run free. Follow your heart. Fuck your director. I think I've been a bit of a... (laughs) I'm a serial dater. I love love. Um, Yeah. I think throw caution to the wind. I think love is the best thing in life. You may as well be chasing after it if it's uh, available. Uh, there are some standard questions that I ask on this uh, show. So, um, yeah, I, this has been fascinating, by the way. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and with your answers. I've, I've very much enjoyed this. But there are some standard philosophy questions that I need to get to before we finish up, if that is okay. So I like to ask people, uh, what do you think happens when we die? Oh, I'm so torn. I reckon if I'm really honest with myself, I think we are... Uh 
just flesh that rots into the ground and that's done. Um, I don't know, I'd like to think that some... It's funny, I'm watching Six Feet Under at the moment. Have you ever watched that show? Yeah, I loved it. Um, absolutely loved it when it came. Is it your first time or are you, are you revisiting it's it? It's my second, but it's been a very long time. I'd forgotten most of it. Yeah, it's uh, so in our household, it's one of those shows that will often just be on the television. If we're doing something else and there's just an episode on, we'll just you know, have it on in the background. But we will. I imagine that I've seen probably it, it five times minimum and I would have seen the final episode 20 times because... There are, speaking of Edinburgh, like sometimes when I'm just feeling a million miles away from home, I will often put on that uh, final episode of uh, uh, Six Feet Under and just have a cry at what I think is probably the most perfect ending of any TV show that has ever been in the history of TV shows. I can still cry thinking about it. So if you're about to say something terrible about it, then... (laughs) Sorry, I've really backed you into a corner if you're like, I'm re-watching it and it's real terrible. No, it's amazing. You just, you forget, like, watching that show, you think about death so much all the time. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'd love to think that our spirit lives on somehow and goes somewhere and that we can somehow communicate to the people we love through subtle signs, like in my fantasy land, if, if I designed the world. I think that would be beautiful. But I think I'm also very cynical and maybe we do just get buried into the ground and dissolve and... We've just got to leave stuff behind that people remember us by and make art and have an impact on people if we want to leave anything behind. If uh, if you do think about death, has death been like, is it present in your mind? Are you the sort of person who, you know, has a sense of the, you know, the clock is ticking or that, you know, has death been around you in your life? Is it something that you, you think about a lot outside watching Six Feet Under? Um, I vape. I vape all the time. And lately I've been coughing up little clouds of like cheesecake flavored liquid. And I vape from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. So the fact that I'm not vaping during this interview, I feel like I should be given a gold star for. I was scared it might make noise. Um, and I also have, I feel bad because I've been smoking during this entire like interviews so like for the people at home again like i should say to the kids at home smoking cigarettes is bad for you and that's why i don't smoke cigarettes but i have been smoking (laughs) during this uh interview and i've also got the background from my football podcast that i did previously to doing this chat with bella and it's the most ridiculous cartoonish afl premiership cup that i've had behind me so you've had to stare at me in front of this cartoonish cup smoking the entire time while you've been too polite to vape so i apologize for that (laughs) i uh i really feel like i've let you down uh in, in relation to your own health, then, uh, you think about it a little bit is what you're saying. Yeah, I think it's this combination of coughing up this vape juice in a way that I was like, this probably isn't healthy long term and might kill you at some point. And watching Six Feet Under where everyone is constantly dying, thinking about their own mortality, burying somebody else. Um, yeah, it's kind of been low-key in my mind lately. My dad also passed this year. Um, my dad died in April and we hadn't spoken in 18 years so um nobody significant in my life has ever died I had grandparents but they were very old and I didn't know them very well so my dad passing is kind of the first one so yeah dad died I've been watching six feet under and I vape a lot and I I think it's not good for my body so those are the three things that are kind of circulating around the back of my mind at the moment if if you leave something behind and you know 
often, you know, I guess the the best thing that we can possibly do is just, you know, hopefully at least the people who loved us the most, you know, feel you know, lost that we aren't there anymore. Um, what is it that you hope lives on after you? Um, I'm writing a memoir at the moment, so I hope my own words do. Um, it's coming out next year. I've written 33,000 of the 70,000 words of it that are due to my publisher in November. I'm not scared. I'm not terrified at all. <laughs> um, yeah, I would like to leave something. I mean, doing a stand-up comedy hour, it's really kind of sad that I guess unless it gets recorded and there's a special, like there's nothing left behind of my show really. Um, so I feel like writing a book, I'm hoping, will leave something behind of me. I mean, hopefully I don't die of a vaping-related illness next year, but I, yeah, I want to finish writing a memoir. Let's let's hope not. Fingers crossed. But the book will sell very well and Anna will yeah, retire on the profits. So <laughs> at least that'll be fine. <laughs> uh, if you could, uh, what is your greatest strength? It's hard to ask people this. People, it's hard to actually say honestly what you think your greatest strength is and I apologize that I'm asking you but I am curious what do, what do you believe your greatest strength is oh god what's my greatest strength I think it's my greatest weakness as well in that I am such a perfectionist like yeah I I am the person that wanted to make a show and instead of being like, this is a first show that I'm putting on at Melbourne Fringe, it'll be fine. I was like, I'm writing the best show that anybody has ever seen ever and, you know, drove myself into an anxiety-related coma in the process of trying to make something that, again, was way higher than the bar of entry needed it to be. Um, I think, yeah, same with me now trying to write a memoir and... You know, people saying to me, it's a first book. It's allowed to be, you know, it's allowed to be a bit okay. And I'm like, no, this will be a critically acclaimed bestseller. If it's not, I will throw myself into a pit. Um, so I think just being really driven to do things as well as I can is both my greatest strength and probably the worst thing about me. If you could steal a skill from anybody, it can be any skill. You don't have to learn how to do it. I've got a magic wand. And you get this skill overnight. It could be to cook or to play basketball or to, you know, have the words of somebody else or the singing voice of somebody else. But it doesn't be, need to be limited to those things. It's just something else that someone else has that you admire that you wish you had yourself. What would it be? Uh, I'd love to be able to make music. I'd love to be able to sing and play guitar. Um, I'd love to be a rock star. I think if I could have an alternate life, that's what I'd go for. Uh, I have no musical talent. I can't sing. I've got an unused guitar covered in dust that an ex-girlfriend bought for me like 10 years ago sitting next to my bed. <laughs> like no aptitude for it. I would love that. When was the last time you cried? Oh, wow. Um, that's a really good question. Not often. I think it was going through um, my dad's stuff. So like I said, my dad died in April and yeah, we hadn't spoken. We'd fallen out when I was a teenager and he ended up isolating, I think, everybody. He didn't have anyone that was close to him at the end. So I got a call from his lawyer saying, do you want his ashes and his stuff? <laughs> and I went, no, I don't want his ashes. I haven't spoken to this man in 18 years, but sure, send me the photos and stuff. And yeah, I got this box and unpacked it 
and he had about a hundred photos and some of them were of him as a kid and of his parents and his siblings but like half of them were of me and they were of me as a kid and a teenager and all of my school photos and I just thought about this man carrying around 50 photos of his daughter that he hadn't spoken to for 18 years and even on his deathbed he didn't want to speak to me and that broke my heart I wept like a little kid final question um, thank you so much for this this has been great can we plug some stuff I'll plug stuff at the start but um, we'll plug it at the end and then that way I know what's important to plug basically this is my cheat because I record the intro after this so I always like to talk to you about what it is you'd like to plug and then I'll smartly put that in up the top as well so what is it that is best to plug for people oh man it's so funny trying to plug something in this time and circumstance is it because I've got nothing live happening ever again in the foreseeable future (laughs) Um, I will have a memoir out next year. It should be released of July of next year. It is as of yet untitled or it's had about seven terrible titles I've worked through, none of which are good. Um, but yeah, Pan Macmillan will be publishing my, my memoir next year. Um, and otherwise social media following is always very good. I am at Bella Greenery everywhere. I love the follows. I live for them. And you can find um, some of your stand up online as well. It's not something you're going to get money for unfortunately a lot of free youtube clips but i think it's definitely worth going and checking out you'll have a really good time and i think you'll get a whole bunch of new fans as well uh from this i hope uh this is the final question it's always the final question so i have a time machine um one round trip forward backward anywhere in history you can go to a point in your own life and change it or observe it you can go to a point in history and observe it you don't need to change history like look if you know I, I understand that everyone's first impulse is like, well, I probably should do something good for the planet, like, you know, kill Hitler or whatever. <laughs> but I've got a time machine. I'm going to send someone back qualified to kill Hitler to kill Hitler. So it's not something that you have to worry about. This is your trip and you're allowed to use it for whatever indulgent purpose you want to use your round trip in a time machine for. What are you doing? Oh, wow. I feel so... Um shallow superficial when i'm like hitler didn't even occur to me i want to go back to 2010 when i played roller derby um i was obsessed with roller derby at the time it was my life and i was on the team that played the first uh international game of roller derby that australia played so it was victoria versus texas and there were three and a half thousand people at the victorian showgrounds watching us and i felt like a rock star roller derby was one of those little communities where you're famous amongst like a small community and everybody outside of that community gives no fucks about who you are. But for one night I was on the Australian roller derby team. Um, and I still look back on that as the happiest night of my life. Yeah. I, I'd just go back and play that again. That's an awesome answer. Thank you so much for this. I've had so much fun. I hope this has been um, cool for you too. Cause I really genuinely have enjoyed it. So um check out uh, bella online and when shows come back go and see shows hopefully her award-winning show will be playing in some other places at some stage and uh yeah can't wait for your um your memoir as well uh this is really exciting thank you so much for doing this today thanks so much for having me